0: Welcome this morning everyone, Saturday the 13th, lucky number. And today we meet to study a class on the Upanishads, on the Vedas, on the great teachings of the wisdom of the East, which we turn to in times of trouble and in times of search and striving, in order to glean the salient lessons of this life amidst all the mundane activities and average and normal preoccupations of the day. And it's my great privilege to be able to speak on Vedanta. I've always felt that way because more than just a passion, which isn't a word, we usually use that often in Vedanta. (laughs) As my teacher once said, when somebody called another person their sweetheart, we don't have sweethearts in Vedanta. (laughs) 90-year-old Swami. <laughs> but rather than being just a passion of mine, it's it's become my whole life. Therefore, I've given myself and those whom I've learned it from have given themselves completely to understanding its meaning. Many of you may remember a story I told about this great Swami, Swami Shishananda, who lived here, right here in your own city for so many decades, teaching this to those who are really interested in it and that uh, one day he he called upon me to help him mow the lawn. And he had this very strange way of mowing the lawn, a sort of a Zen way of, you might say, Zen and the art of of lawn mowing, as they say. So he would just take off across the lawn with his power mower in sort of haphazard fashion, cutting maybe a... Eighth of an inch off, sixteenth of an inch off the top of every blade of grass. Maybe it was on a way, uh, this <laughs> nonviolent way of of mowing. But and I once made the mistake of telling him Swami, you know, you can lower the blades on these mowers. And he said, Mind your own business. So I was put in my place. But one of those occasions, uh, I happened to uh, be called upon to put the lawnmower in the trunk of a big old car that the Vedanta Society used, and take it out when he transferred the mower from the women's cottages back to the monastery or back to the ashram to mow the lawns at both places. <coughs> I think he got exercised this way, but he would, you know, wrap himself up in a bandana so that he wouldn't breathe any dust. And he was a short man and always wore this old long overcoat outside. So he was quite a sight, I'm sure, to the neighbors. But I took the lawnmower out of the car once, the my, my first time I ever did that. And I unfolded the it was one of these mowers that you fold the, the the handle back onto the mower so that you could it be more compact and i i tried to unfold that and it wouldn't unfold it wouldn't uh, so so i forced it and there was these little plastic tabs on the side and it, it broke those and so swami was standing right there and he didn't see that so i was in a quandary whether to tell him <laughs> because his scoldings were of course famous throughout the three worlds. <laughs> so I picked up the broken tabs off the ground, and my, my friend was nearby me, a very good friend of mine, I won't mention his name, and he said, uh, hide them. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted to end the lawnmower part of the day with, with a whirlwind scolding, yeah. yeah. And at that moment, the decision was taken out of my hands because Swami Shishananda turned around to face me. And so I said, Swami, I broke these off the moor." And he looked at me, and everyone was waiting with bated breath for Babaji's hair to go flying back in his head and <laughs> the hurricane of a scolding. But instead, a smile came over his face, and he said, that's a precision machine. You have to know how to operate a precision machine. And then the few seconds of classic silence. And then onward, Vedanta also is a precision machine. You must know how to operate it, how to work it. So he turned it into a very important lesson, and I think he probably had enough foresight and omniscience from his many, many years of Advaita Vedanta meditation, as I have on the board here, to foresee that I would be sharing this wisdom. Now I say sharing it because teaching is a enigmatic Phrase and occupation both. You have to be careful about the ego of a teacher. And in spiritual life, of course, that applies even more. So there was a story about Swami Nikilananda coming to the West, being sent to the West by the Ramakrishna Order. He was, of course, a great devotee of Holy Mother who came here in New York and was so instrumental in this second and third generation of Swamis to bring Vedanta to the West. And I think he was talking to one of the direct disciples of of Ramakrishna before he passed away, possibly Sharananda or one of them. And he said, how can I go to the West and teach this Vedanta? I'm, I'm really not capable. I don't feel adequate to do so. And the Swami simply said to him, you're not going to teach, you're going to share what you know. So that perspective is one that is good to adopt because it is a vast subject and it is very deep and very profound. My feeling about it is that without getting too deeply into superior and inferior paths and what they consist of is that it's sort of a finishing school because you'll find many religions and philosophies concentrating on dualism which has its beauty which has its efficacy and which in this dual world in this world of multiplicity and 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 variety definitely has its place but there's nothing like Advaita Vedanta there's nothing like non-dualism and When Christ had his realization, I and my father are one, he had the non-dual experience. And when Sri Ramakrishna had his experience of my mother and I are one, that was, of course, a Dvaita Vedanta. And when Shankara stated in the scriptures, Jivatman, this embodied being, and Paramatman, the supreme being, are one and the same thing, that's non-dualism. And when Gaudapada said, "Maya matramidam Dvaita Dvaita Paramataha, all those who forget, as it were, that nature and spirit are one thing, that God and mankind are one thing, that creature and creator are one thing. They, as Upanishads state, go from birth to death and death to birth. That is, those who see difference here go from death to birth and birth to death. So, if we believe these great statements of the Vedantic scriptures, of the Vedic lore and teachings, then it behooves us to make all effort and striving to realize those truths in this very life as we just chanted. That's the last thing actually Swami Sheshananda said to me by way of teaching before he passed from this body and this earth into the beatitude of the spirit, if you, to use a Christian term. Is if your ideal is high, then your effort must be tremendous. So these classes are given with an eye and a view to raise us up to commit us, to um, inspire us, to drive us towards fulfillment of life. That very fulfillment which we're not getting in day-to-day existence. There's always some sense of brooding or fear in the mind about what we do. And Vedanta looks to put an end to that fear and is one of the most effective ways, I know, if maybe not the only way, if it's done with devotion and dedication and sincerity and perseverance, that does put an end to the great fear. In fact, Sri Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita states that those even who practice a little of this, my yoga, they put an end to the great fear of death. There is no loss in this, he says, and even a little of this practice. So, as I just chanted, many don't ever hear of this great self, the very self about which Swami Vivekananda stated, there is no devil, there is no God. There's just the great self. That is pure non-dualism. You may call that great self God if you want. And maybe from a distorted view, it can even be your devil. Because good and bad things happen. As we state in Vedanta, chit happens. Chit, of course, means the highest intelligence of the mind. It happens, and it works its way down into this relative universe, or this apparently relative universe, because really there's only oneness here. But by viewing it as two or as many, then we fall into this delusion of separation. So we often give that teaching to overcome agency, possession, and separation, those three things. Sense of ownership must be transcended, so we become custodians or increase our detachment. That's number one. Then number two, sense of agency must be transcended or overcome or transformed into knowledge that I do nothing, Shakale tomari icha, as the great song of India, one of Sharmakrishna's favorites. That is, mother, all happens by thy sweet will. Mm -hmm. That's the realization of the great beings, that all happens by thy will. But as long as one thinks of oneself as the doer, then one, of course, doesn't adopt that attitude or begins to adopt it gradually over periods of time so that soon one really does feel that one can give up the sense of agency. And doesn't mean one stops acting. It means that one acts under the control of a higher power. And that can't be feigned or pretended. It's something that overtakes you, as it were, as you do your practice. And then the sense of separation, that very, very subtle but very powerful tendency of the mind to think oneself separate from God or other beings. Of course, if those teachings, which I must say I've found present in all the scriptures of the different traditions of the world, are realized, then one will have the ultimate solution for existence. See, then one won't hurt another being because one knows that the same self that exists inside of you exists in other beings, in all things really. Because in Eastern tradition, Atman is there in the tree, in the rock, in the molecule, in the atom not just in the sentient beings, but also in the apparently insentient things. Atman pervades all. So, only Atman abides, is the phrase we use. That's in the name of a nice book, which helps segue right back into the talk, is that the reason for us being here is this study of Advaita Vedanta, or Vedanta, if you will, with a sort of emphasis on its Advaitic nature, that is, Advaita, a word that the rishis used in ancient times, to mean non-dual or oneness, this idea of oneness, which Shankara brought very much to the fore when he lived and gave Advaita Vedanta, its real day in the sun. Now it's come down to us in this pure form, and we can look back. That's one of the beauties of being alive in this day and age, is that we can look back on both periods. That is the Shankara Vedanta period and the period of the rishis who were really, if you read the Upanishads speaking in terms of dualism, qualified non-dualism, and non-dualism, all three. That is, their basis was non-dual, but they explain the relative universe and the multiplicity of things, the diversity that's going on all around us in terms of non-duality, using phrases that speak in dual terms or in a qualified way. Now, the efficacy of studying Advaita Vedanta, for that we go to Shankara. We've read, of course, The Crest Jewel of Wisdom, Viveka Chudamani, that's one of the great works, and you can get these at this Vedanta Center, SRV Association, in our library. Aprokshanubhuti is another one, and that's the one which I've taken this interesting 15-phase Advaita Vedanta meditation from. Last time when I was here, we were studying mantra, and at that time we also studied the seven types of meditation. Many of you might remember what they are. If uh, we could have a pop quiz Uh, But then uh, I see faces going sour, so maybe (laughs) we, we won't do that. I'll just quickly list for you that these seven types of meditation are meditation on an object, pratima pratikajan, a very rudimentary way of focusing the mind. The purpose here is to focus the mind. I might say not to make the body healthy, although that could happen as a result, but that's not the emphasis as you find in the sort of hatha yoga culture that's going on in the West nowadays, and it's not even to gain knowledge or to grant some sort of mystical vision. It's to calm the mind, purify the mind, so that it can learn the art of inaction, meditation, dhyan, or that it can dharana, first learn how to concentrate itself. That is, to put it in terms that will help all of us learn how to water the flowers and not the weeds, because the mind penchant to go out and focus on negative happenings and brood on things that are essentially detrimental to our thinking process and wastes of time, time and energy both. We want to be able to focus the mind, and we do that first by way of formal sitting. And then later on, as my teacher illustrated so well, you're walking around in meditation, whether you're moving or sitting or whatever you're doing, everything is perfect focus in meditation. As maybe a surgeon might know, when he goes into that very deep focus in meditation of trying to heal somebody. Healing is one thing, but this idea of pure being or pure perfection, absolute reality, is is beyond healing, and it's beyond practice. We undergo sadhana and practice or spiritual disciplines to expand the body-mind mechanism and purify the, the life force in us. But those things in themselves are not the Atman. Body and mind are not the Atman. The Atman is that which is self-effulgent, like the sun, and the intellect is that which shines by borrowed light, like the moon. So that's one of the great Vedantic sayings in the Upanishads. So we have to know that, that there is an unseen, indescribable, absolute, indivisible, eternal, deathless, birthless verity called Atman. And that's what the Upanishads focus on. So to begin the step towards realization of that Atman, one focuses the mind on some object. It could be an obelisk or a stone, a stone image, or a candle flame, you hear sometimes. Because Krishna said in the Gita, the mind needs to be as steady as a candle flame in a windless place. See? So if you can make your mind steady like that for 15, 20 minutes, half hour to an hour in meditation, without thinking, you'll be able to see as God sees. See, Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, said, if you want to see God, You have to see as God sees. So that is I and my father are one. See, that is I and my mother are one. Or Jivatman and Paramatman are one in the same thing. You assume or become your true nature. We're often divorced from our true nature as we live. What's that? That's watching a movie out of focus, and nobody likes to do that. (laughs) You turn and scream at the projectionist, Focus! So meditation is a statement on yourself. Reveal that Atman within me. The Atman reveals itself to those which the Atman chooses. But in order to be chosen, you have to be worthy and qualified, or you have to make yourself ready for the advent of such, or the appearance, if you will, of such a great essence inside yourself. That is predicated on the fact that you've been overlooking it for so long, maybe for lifetimes. Or in this lifetime you've somehow forgotten due to upbringing, society, uh, business, politics, or your own karma. Basically it all comes down to your own karma. You've somehow forgotten this essence within you and therefore are running about, chasing external things. You're seeing difference and you're going from birth to death and death to birth. But you want to live in oneness and know your immutable, immortal self which needs not the body or mind for its existence. The body and mind are simply bubbles forming in the ocean of this immortal self. They rise, they fall, they come and go. But that thou art, Tattvamasi, the great statement in the Vedas, you see, you are that immortal self, birthless and deathless and indivisible. So this theme comes back again and again as we study the Upanishads, as if they want to enforce upon us this idea first. Know the non-dual self. Even if you can't know it yet, then assume it, because it will dawn on you if you assume the position. Sri Ramakrishna said, the wax apple reminds you of the real thing. (laughs) That's the idea, you see. You look at a bowl of wax fruit from a distance and you get hungry. So in the same way, and you're going to go and find out that they're unreal. They're caricatures of the real thing. Then you'll go to the market and get the real thing and you'll satisfy yourself. So in that way, look at this intellect, look inside this mind, body-mind mechanism, the wax fruit, and you'll see that it's unreal. But you'll approach it and you'll see what it's good for. And you'll utilize it then to find that which is ultimately satisfying. You'll take all steps to get that most important and crucial You can't say thing or object because it's not, but that truth, that essence. And you'll realize that all other things are really just things or objects, and you will not see difference in anything. You'll see that one same essence underlying all things, pervading all things. But you'll know it's not made of an atomic structure or molecular structure. It can't be born, it can't die, the wind can't dry it, water can't wet it, fire can't burn it, and so forth and so on. And this will become the pole star of your existence and the very sustenance. You'll know without a doubt. And all trials or tribulations, whether they come from outside or from the gods and goddesses in heavenly realms or from your own mind, they'll be rendered ineffective to hurt you or harm you. You'll sit and abide in your own self. So, again, back to the meditation, you use a very rudimentary way of calming your mind first. Then you can go further to Shukshmajan. Sukshmajan means meditating on subtle truths like in the scriptures. <coughs> you can focus your mind on the teachings. See, that's a very important thing because that gives you discrimination. And from discrimination you get detachment. And from detachment comes Samo, Damo, inner peace and self-control. And that leads to faith, and faith leads to desire for freedom. That's how it's put in the Vedanta. That is the four treasures and the six jewels. We've studied them quite a bit. So meditation on the scriptures, on the subtle truths, will awaken that desire for freedom in you, and you'll begin to pursue it. You need shruti, hear the truth. Yukti, analyze the truth. Think about it, roll it over in your mind. And anubhav, get direct experience of the truth. Those three things are... The one, two, three punch of Vedanta, which puts to death or knocks to the mat this opponent called ignorance and suffering which comes from it. You see, It'll work. It does work. It has worked. It is working. Before your very eyes, I can attest to it, and I saw it before my very eyes in the person of my teacher, all my teachers, because they had focused their mind on this and forgotten everything else They've become like a laser beam. This is what I want. This is the truth. Nothing else matters. Everything else will fall into place. I don't have to worry about it if I just know this one thing. So that was the great question that one of the great students of the powerful and realized rishis and old asked. What is it? Teach me that one thing by which knowing all else is known but who can focus on that one thing? <laughs> <laughs> there are too many distractions. See, there are too many allurements. And then we become immured in Maya, see, in this external world of changing verities. We take the real for the unreal and the unreal for the real. So that kind of meditation is there. And of course, what I'm working towards is this 15-step Advaita Vedanta meditation, but just giving you a little preliminary that there are different kinds of meditation and that meditation on subtle truths was a second kind, almost hierarchical, first an object or uh, something simple that just to keep your mind from being restless, you see. So I can just take a breath and be at peace for a little while. I'll know what that peace is. I'll remind myself of that peace again. Then I can plunge into the scriptures and listen to the teachings. And then my mind being focused will absorb it. If it's restless, it's impervious to any kind of injection of the teachings. It won't take. Water and oil won't mix. You have to make it like milk and water. They'll mix. And if you churn it, it'll become butter. And if you let the butter sit in a quiet place, it coagulates. So meditation is that quiet place. The mind will then produce that which is its pure substance, the Atman. That will come forward. Bring to front, like on the computer. Bring to front. You have a document that's missing. You want it to come forward. You just simply push a button. So push this button of meditation and that which has been hidden to you all your life comes forward. And you're amazed. You remember. That's called awakening. And it leads to other stages called attainment and realization or enlightenment. The third type of meditation, one is able to meditate on Ishvara. That is, there is a God with form. In other words, the whole universe is really God's body. And all beings are really projections of that one Brahman. So you need to see it like that. And in order to see it like that, you focus on an ideal. That is, someone who is realized. In the Upanishads it said, meditate on the heart of a saint and you get what's in the heart of a saint. So that's another very effective and very valid form of meditation where you take an Ishta. And the best Ishtas, of course, are the Shambhavi teachers. That is, in the Upanishads and the Tantras, It's stated, uh, Shambhavi teachers are those founders of the great religions or the avatars or divine incarnations that have come. Avatar being always one, but coming many times. That's the best way to think of divine being. Not that there are many avatars that come many times. Not that there's just one avatar that comes once. But there is one avatar and it comes many times. So that being said, then Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Ramakrishna, Krishna, and so forth, become the great exemplars for us, that is, those who are never born and who never die. The body appearing for them is just an assumption. It's the body and mind that come and go, but their self is always present. They're always living in their self. So somehow they can make that body and the whole universe go away, as it were, or they can appear inside of it and show us a part of this amazing verity or ultimate reality called Brahman. They're there, as it were, exemplifying or epitomizing and revealing a very tiny portion of that Brahman just by their appearance. So that's a form of meditation one can take to. And beyond that, although there are few others, you finally learn how to meditate on your very self. You take away the the idea of difference between I and Thou, and you realize the truth of of oneness. Those types of meditation are there, and in fact, they're in the teachings and also on the discourse tapes that we're beginning to put out. But leading on to the subject of today, the interesting and intriguing thing about this is that we've all studied yoga. And in a sense, what Shankara is doing here is showing the Advaitic version of yoga. That is, yoga is a great practice, we know. There's eight-limbed, yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, prachahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, those eight limbs are there. That is ethical observances, then daily practices, then sitting, then breathing, withdrawing the senses from their objects. That's, of course, the pivotal place which many people fall back from. Then you can concentrate. The reason people can't concentrate on meditation is they haven't been able to withdraw their senses from the objects effectively. The objects, even the thought of the object, always comes back and ruins their meditation. So it's a very beautiful set of teachings in this eight-limbed yoga. And it can be done in a more or less effectual way. See, this is what I think Shankara is leading towards, is that if you can assume this non-dual position in your mind, even though it may seem impractical to you or difficult or impossible, that the practice goes along much quicker. The obstacles that are in the way go away much faster. Whereas, if you go it by way of what we call process, goal oriented, then you have your mind fixed on some sort of goal. Well, that's a natural thing, but there is a better way than that because along this slow way of moving towards it with a goal in mind, then you have many dangers there. Maybe you (coughs) might become a professional student. You never arrive, you always approach. But that really flies in the face or goes against the grain of the teaching doesn't it is that you're already that that's one of the pet phrases you're already that you don't need to do anything is the next thing out of their mouth but that's not true the thing is is that you do need to strive very hard and in a very dedicated way daily that's removing the dust from the mirror you see the mirror is already there but it can become cloudy just like a sky can become cloudy so you do the practice in order to maintain view of this cloudless sky or this perfectly clear surface of the mind. You make the mind completely clear. And the Atman will then always be reflecting in it. Your intellect will produce that for you every day by day, moment by moment. The thing is is that while you're undergoing this effort, you remember at all times, I am the Self in all. That thou art. Or this Self is pure consciousness. Or I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. That's the truth of the matter, but mind, prana, and body are still in varying states of realization or lack thereof. So, one then strives to purify. That is, upi mamangani bhak pranas chakshu shrotramatra bala cha sarvani. One of the great peace chants: May my body gain in strength. May my prana flow unimpeded. May my mind expand in its capacity for the realization of Brahman. When Sri said realization of God is the only purpose or the main purpose for life, and it's very well expressed in that one sloka. To use the body, the prana, and the mind for realizing Brahman. Is that being obsessive? <laughs> I would say the opposite is true. That which people usually use the mind and body and prana for in this life. That's obsessive because it brings about suffering or unclarity or unrest but by studying this one thing this principle of Brahman within you by focusing on it by meditating on it by realizing it then everything else is put right why do you think Christ said seek thee first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto thee it's been said by different great teachers in different ways and it is true that if one makes that the main point and purpose of all their meditations and their very life that life will then go on without a hitch in fact many fine qualities will come out of you that are hidden within you, many talents many powers, subtle and refined, that will help you and will help the whole world so yoga done w- with a view to an end if it isn't the highest end is is limiting, It can take a lot of time can open you up to Problems like the eight occult powers, name and fame and gain. See, those kinds of things, you begin to focus on those. But meditation or yoga or spiritual practice done with Advaita Vedanta in mind helps you skirt those distractions, those impediments, those potential obstacles, and brings you quickly to that which you already are. So this is one of the great powers and beauties of Advaita Vedanta. So I give you that perspective because when we go into this 15-point meditation, we'll want to know that yoga is a very powerful path and Shankara is looking at it through the clear magnifying lens of Advaita Vedanta and making it into that which Patanjali really incepted it and taught it to be very non-dual in its end. So with all that said, let's look at these first two yama and niyama those are ethical practices and daily observances in yoga we know that if we were to have a pop quiz i'm sure everyone here could tell me what the, the yamas and niyamas in yoga are right there're five of each they're ahimsa satya asteya brahmacharya and aparigraha are the five yamas that is non injury Ahimsa, which of course a word made very popular by Mahatma Gandhi in his nonviolent, non resistant campaign, and then truthfulness, Satya. So nonviolence, truthfulness would have to be the very first two things you would point out as being the precursors to samadhi on the tenets of yoga. And then non covetousness. That's of course mentioned right out the front in the Upanishads. Don't covet the wealth of others. you will find that one of the very first things they say. That leads to greed and power struggles and so forth. We know this. It's reflected very well in the world, in our culture today in terms of politics and business and so forth. And it leads to many of the problems that we have upon us right at this time. And then chastity, that is brahmacharya, be pure in thought word and deed. And then non-receiving of gifts, aparigraha. Uh, Those are the five practices which they pointed out of old in Patanjali's time, the five yamas, the five niyamas were tapas, svadhyaya, santosha, saucha, and Ishvara pranidhana. Of course, these can all be gotten out of the Raja Yoga of Swami Vivekananda, which is the commentary on Patanjali's Yoga that he gave in English. Those are austerity, a forgotten solution to many things in this day and time, and svadhyaya, study of scriptures. Santosha contentment, purity, saucha, and Ishvara Pranidhana worshiping God. See, those are all daily observances that one can uh, indulge in in order to remind the mind of its true nature. That its true nature is there. Those have gone through real quick. Those, of course, are in Patanjali's Yoga. Now, let's look at Yama and Niyama according to Shankara's. Advaita Vedanta meditation now we've said that this first limb yama is a, a five pointed thing truthfulness and uh, hymns and so forth now we have Shankara's idea of yama simply control of the senses he says restraining the senses by the thought all this is brahman all this is brahman that's true yama and should be practiced constantly So your moral observance really is a responsibility to see all this is Brahman. Isn't that beautiful? It cuts to the chase, as they say. You're to remind yourself that at all times. All this is Brahman. So whereas, according to Patanjali, non-killing and truthfulness, non-stealing, continence and non-receiving are the tenets of yoga, according to Shankara, when everything is known as Brahman, these five will come naturally to you. You won't have to practice them. In other words, when Patanjali was setting up this great eight-limb system, which unfortunately people are only following the third limb nowadays, physical exercise, hatha yoga. But when the father of yoga set up this system, it was to help people who were suffering and who needed a way. In the same way that Lord Buddha came and stated the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, in his time, when he saw people were suffering, well, there must be a way out of suffering. First admit that suffering exists, and that it comes about by karma. And then that puts the responsibility in your camp. It's in your court, not in the court of some god or some devil. And so you first then take responsibility for everything that happens to you. Then from there you can realize the power is in you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. These teachings then make much more sense and have greater import and greater impact on your practice and on your realization and bring all those truths to the fore, make suffering and unhappiness and ignorance ineffectual. Everything is known as Brahman, then these five exercises will follow. So that's Shankara's Yama in in an Advaitic way. That is, not to disregard those five, but to first know yourself and know all this is Brahman. Then those five practices become very effective. You can wield them at will. and not something you're saying, gee, I have to attain this. I see, this is going to be hard. But it becomes quite natural because you've taken away the mind's penchant for division. And you're making it all indivisible. You're becoming of one mind, one pointed. Then niyama follows. The niyamas were things like study of scripture and worship of God and austerity and so forth. What does Shankara say about that? Niyamas. Control of the mind. So, Whereas yama was control of the senses to him, now niyama is control of the mind. Continuous flow of one kind of thought, which leads to bliss, is always practiced by the wise, he says. The continuous flow of one kind of thought only. The niyamas of yoga come easily to one who constantly dwells on Brahman. So I could stand up right now and walk from this place over to that door and in the five seconds it takes me to get there could have forgotten brahman in zen they call it walking on rice paper when you can walk across rice paper without leaving a wrinkle then you have the idea of how thought word indeed must become so subtle so one so aware so conscious Or they say a bird just flew across the sky there i just saw it i looked out the window but i see that it left no trace in the air so that's how subtle your focus of mind on Brahman must be. That is, your actions can't leave any trace, no karma behind, by which the God of karma can trace you back, by which the Lord of death can come looking for you. No trace. Completely transparent. That is, your mind contains its dual consciousness, that is, two, two eyes, two ears, everything is looking in terms of duality. It contains chitta, the thoughts that always go through it, and it contains the intellect, the buddhi, that which thinks and strives. And then it contains the ahamkara, the ego, that sense of, I'm an individual, or this is mine, or I, me, and mine, they say. All those things must become very refined and leave no trace. To such an extent that if you ask Sri Ramakrishna, who are you? He would say, well, I've looked inside, but I can't find anything there to call me. He had found that there was no I. There's no sense of individual I there existing in the mind. Completely, as the Upanishads say, so malleable, so saturated with Brahman, like a cloth dipped over and over again in water so that it's just absolutely pliable and, and soaked. The mind must become that way. Then you'll leave no trace on the sky of awareness when you move, when you think, when you act. So that's true niyama, control of the mind, brought about effectively by knowing all this is Brahman. See, yamas and niyamas. Control the senses so that everything is known to be Brahman. Control the mind so that one constantly dwells on Brahman. Move from this place to that place with that thought in your mind. It isn't that it will shut everything else out. It's not that. It's that everything else will make sense. It itself, when known because of its subtle nature, assumes the backdrop of everything you do. But you have to consciously know it to be there because of its subtlety. If you don't consciously focus on it moment to moment, day to day, at first as a practice given, later it becomes an assumed fact. And then it will permeate your life and you'll never forget it. An expert dancer never takes a wrong step, Sharmakrista said. So it's that way. A musician's playing along, makes a mistake, but turns it into something beautiful the audience didn't even know it was a mistake. Instead of having habitual preoccupation with all the mundane things of the world, your habit has become all is Brahman. You've replaced the negative, detrimental habit with a very positive, beneficial one. That is the secret of the yogis and the Advaita Vedantists. See, they move through life without leaving a trace. Then karma can't find them, death can't find them. When they die, it's a death of the body only. But when uninformed or unillumined people die, it's a death of me, and I'll be reborn again. I'm still thinking in terms of a separate being, a separate self, and there is no such thing. I've lived in the wrong way. I've thought in the wrong way my whole life. Hopefully at the moment of death I'll realize that, and that's at least of help. But in most cases you see, and I know I've been around and I still am around people who are dying, and I see what shines through at that time. is not attractive, it's quite ugly, quite fearful, quite disturbing. You want to die in the way you live, and after you die you want people to say, he or she lived in Brahman, they lived, they were great. You want them to remember your great deeds. But you must live in Brahman and die in Brahman. That is, the mind must be peaceful and restful as you act and move and think, when you're in full control of the prana and the body, in the same way as death approaches, you should have practiced your detachment and your withdrawal and your knowledge that I'm not the body-mind mechanism. And that should come into play for you so that you can easily let the body go when the time is without any sense of fear or loss. If you say, I was this cage of bones and flesh, then I'm going to assume another body. You go through the agony of birth and death. Even disease, you see, makes itself felt as being very real. But a person who dies of a disease who is illumined, the pain and suffering is much diminished. And Sri Ramakrishna proved that at the time of his death. Somebody brushed against him. He had this horrible hole in his throat, cancerous, you see. It must have been extremely painful. But when they brushed against him, a thrill of joy went through them. And Sri Ramakrishna turned his head slowly and said, Oh, you rascal, you've discovered my secret. (laughs) In other words, and then he said later, let the body and disease befriend each other, but you, O oh, mind, remain fixed on the bliss of Brahman. He was focused on the bliss of Brahman. I've seen that in India. I went with a, one of my teachers, an old Swami, who was also a, a disciple, direct disciple of Holy Mother, Swami Nityas Rupananda. And I was with him when he got operated on something on his skin. He had it cut off with an electric needle, and the doctor asked him if he wanted anesthetic and he said no wait a minute and he just put his mind away from it and it now go and dr cut and so he knew how to focus his mind away from body and from pain and so forth and so probably felt very little of it it's a matter of focus but if your mind is scattered all over the universe if it's spread thin and wide then so many dangers can come to affect you and it's just like the uh, old and a very wonderful adage of the mustard seeds. Once they get blown out of the package, then it's very hard to gather them back. If you had kept them all in the package, then it's like the focused mind, you see. All the seeds are there, and I control them, and they won't sprout. They won't sprout other bodies or other karmas if I don't myself choose to do so. Because I am the self in all. There's not some external force that's operating all this. That thing we call Mother, Divine Mother, is the very Self within. And we have to start thinking about the indivisibility of this and that. That is apparent. This is real. That is this. In fact, you'll find that sloka in the Kathopanishad at the end of a whole series of slokas. Verily, this is that. It sounds strange. But the teacher will explain that uh, that is Brahman, this is Brahman. They say, it is far and it is near. What do they mean by Atman is far and near? Do they mean it's all pervasive and everywhere? No, not in that regard. It's far to those who don't realize it. It's far away. But it's very near. It's the nearest and the dearest to those who realize it. So the teacher will explain those subtleties to you. And you yourself will then understand and know and take your place among the ranks of the knowers of Brahman. So, a little bit of explanation about Shankara's view of the Yamas and niyamas. Yamas. Let's go on. Tyaga is the next step, third step of Advaita Vedanta meditation. The classical word that Shankara used here is renunciation, a word that's somewhat scary to the Western culture particularly, because they think of it in terms of having to give up the very foundation that their society is built upon, materials, When one of the yamas, non-covetousness, is exercised, then we have an idea of one level of tyaga. One becomes a tyagi, that is, one who is renounced. Sri Ramakrishna's take on this is that all should renounce, whether they be monk or householder, but that the monk needs to renounce both inwardly and outwardly, while the householder needs to renounce just inwardly. In other words, the householder is going to move among the objects of the senses, practicing detachment, that can lay hands on gold and money, can lay hands on food and objects and can acquire possessions and so forth, but must do it in a sense of complete detachment, knowing those things are impermanent, transitory, changeful. Not only in terms of life and death, but in their very nature they're changing. That is, they're made of molecular structure that's vibrating at different levels of intensity. Stocks and stones slowly and densely, mind's thoughts faster, swifter, more refined and on up so renunciation is for all when understood properly too it does free you from attachment and covetousness and allows you to be free and for the householder really helps them to gain an enjoyment far beyond the enjoyment that people attach to the things they own, possess or experience it's a great bliss to be in this world and Sri Ramakrishna said, here I can eat, drink, and be merry. But I can only do that if I've realized this, that all these things are unreal. Essentially, to put it as the Vedanta says, Brahman-satya-jagad-mitya. That is, Brahman is real, and the world is unreal. The world passes. Things that come and go are transitory. Therefore, not to be taken for what's real, but Brahman remains. Chaga, in terms of how Shankara sees it, is abandoning the illusory universe by realizing it to be the all-conscious Atman. <laughs> you don't abandon it because it's something evil, or even, as I was just speaking, because it's transitory and it comes and goes. Most people of average intellect could even understand that. Oh, yeah, I've seen my friends come and go. I've seen my parents come and go. I've seen my beloved one come and go, and so forth. Those lessons will come home. but. Shankara gives it a very unique turn here by saying that renunciation really happens when you realize it all to be Atman. That's a higher renunciation. Then you move about in it totally unfettered, unbound. Go from place to place and help them out of darkness. Maya's veils, that's how Swamiji put it. Few only know the truth, the rest will hate and laugh at you, O great one. Pay no heed, go thou, the free, from place to place, and help them out of darkness, Maya's veils. Without the search for pleasure or fear of pain, go beyond them both. This is real chaga, this is real renunciation, you are neither attached to the objects of pleasure nor afraid of the consequences of pain. So all fear goes, abaya, you become fearless renunciation then has both its very practical side and its experiential side too one becomes as i said a tyagi why is this renunciation so important because it's honored by all the great ones because it leads to immediate freedom in this life shankara's word for that is jivan mukti the jiva is the embodied soul the jivan mukti means free while being embodied So he gave freedom a unique turn and also a much fuller expression by stating that you can be free right here in the body. I saw that in my teacher. In fact, one of his favorite statements that he would give from the podium quite often is, I don't care for post-mortem emancipation. (laughs) He wasn't into some freedom in the future after I die, you see. He wanted it here and now, and that's Vedanta. That's pure Vedanta. Immediate liberation is the result of this kind of well informed and comprehensive renunciation. Then we come to Mauna. Mauna means silence. Doesn't quite mean the same in in Hawaiian. Mauna means mountain. But there, up on that mountain, there's lots of silence, believe me. And that's why I live there, because it's so peaceful. And so quiet and so majestic. So, mauna, or silence, should also be that way, should be peaceful, should be majestic. That is, Shankara says words and mind turn back from Brahman. Therefore, the wise remain silent. Now, you can accuse me of talking a lot right now, but Sri Ramakrishna says when a pat of butter is placed on the frying pan, then it sizzles. Let's see. Then, when it's clarified, it becomes silent. So that's the case of a being who's talkative, garrulous, loquacious. A nice nice name for a talkative woman would be loquatia. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) And uh, there's probably one for a talkative man, too. One doesn't hear that silent inner voice. You shut out all the instruction that's coming from inside by focusing so much on outer talk. So the wise remain silent to hear that in her voice. That is, as we were just saying, the butter becomes clarified in the pan, it doesn't sizzle anymore, so that's a person who's awakened to realization. But put a rice cake on it, and it sizzles again. So that's the case of a teacher. He has to come out and talk. Very well instance in the fact that Lord Buddha's disciples all left him when he gave up the old-style renunciation. He says, no, I've lived in the woods on leaves and austerity, long enough to know that it isn't producing the kind of realization I'm looking for. Therefore, I will go sit under this tree and and, and meditate for a number of days, and I'll sit here until I get realization, the kind of which is eternal. So he did, and he gained it, and afterwards then his disciples came back because they see that he had followed the right course. They wanted to remain in the ascetic way, in a kind of an old-style renunciate way, But then when they met him later, they realized that he had gained realization and he was radiant with light. And so they came back and asked him, but he was in silence about it all. He broke that silence then in order to explain to them out of compassion. So there are those stages. There are beings who become silent and just remain silent and they see that all is vanity and vexation in this outer world possibly greater ones than that, will break this silence out of compassion. And they'll come back and they'll teach. And they'll spread this. In fact, Sri Ramakrishna's statement for that is that some enjoy mangoes in secret and wipe all traces from their face before they come out. But others will share the mangoes with everyone. So Sri Ramakrishna was of that kind and noted other beings of that kind will come out and share this sweet mango or the sweet fruit of realization with everyone. That's the way of Ramakrishna and his order. I found that to be true when I took teachers in the Ramakrishna order. Also, Shankara says about Mauna, for the ignorant, restraining the speech is given as a practice for their highest good. (laughs) Hmm. So, quite often the guru will say, why don't you practice silence for a day or two, or let's go into retreat and we're not going to talk for a certain period of time. The great saying in Vedanta is shantoham. Shantoham. That is, his name is silence, meaning Brahman. That essence can be realized in silence, which is why you meditate. Not just freedom from speech and the words and so forth, but the mind's babbling. There's a kind of talk that goes on externally. We definitely can retreat from that. But there's also the problem of the mind babbling on in meditation. My own talk, or, or the talk of all these karmic things that are going on, or the considerations of mundane, everyday life, mundane human preoccupation. Those things also have to be shut off. And if you can do that, then you can concentrate and meditate and then eventually gain samadhi. So these are tenets of the practice, of the path. For the ignorant, ignorant of their true self. See, that's the real ignorance. True knowledge is knowing one thing, you might say, Ignorance is knowing many things, that's what Sharmakrishna said. So when he went to school at the elementary level, he spent just a day or two there and then left, even as a child. He said, I see that your education is meant to help me store up bananas for the future. Mother's knowledge is sacred. he, uh, He wouldn't use it for gain. It was life itself. Knowledge was life itself, real life. So he had a, a very, very uncompromising and a very beautiful and unique approach to this life, the sacredness of all existence, as we say. So, mauna or silence has its help for those who don't know their self. But as it becomes deeper and deeper, then it won't only be external talk. The Upanishads said that which people worship here, that's not Brahman. You have to go deeper if you want to know Brahman. But people worship here, even to the extent of in their churches and so forth, there's not Brahman. You have to go deeper in yourself for that. So that takes a great amount of uh, internal silence to have to have mastery over the mind and just sit and be able to turn off the thoughts. Something very profound will then suggest itself to you. You'll feel it in the very marrow of your bones and you'll feel it beyond anything physical. It'll be so deep that it even goes beyond the mind's intuition. It even transcends the inner voice, or other ways of expressing that people use. Because there's no second thing in the Self, there's no external thing. All becomes this unique oneness that we hear about. And you're free, you just walk about, totally non-different from everything. And a human person just moves, again, without leaving any trace. Sri Ramakrishna said that he could tell by the way people walked in the room, what their karmas were and how their features are shaped, their chest, their shoulders, their forehead, their ears and eyes. You could tell their karmas and the problems they were having and also their good qualities by the way they carried themselves, by the way they looked because you are simply the product of your karma. Even your physique, your body, your, the way your prana moves and your mind thinks is simply a result of your karma. That You, you are that in a create form. But the Atman's uncreate. So those who have learned that and know that, then their features, their demeanor, the way they move and talk, takes on that atmosphere of the inner self. That's why a light came out of Jesus and out of Buddha and Ramakrishna, a palpable light. It's tejas, that is ojas, the sexual energy gets refined and utilized inside, gets taken up the the meridians, up the lotuses, these these chakras or centers. And then it comes out the pores of the skin almost as a a light called tejas. And by that, they teach. By that, they transmit. Those who are in the periphery of that light then get a transmission, not just a sound, and it affects them. And so the disciples of Christ, the disciples of Buddha, the twelve, the the noble eight, and the sixteen direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna we saw, were all affected by this light. One of the second-generation Swamis once said to the direct disciples, you're so lucky you saw Sri Ramakrishna face to face. And, And you're so fortunate and so blessed that you had that experience. And then this direct disciple said, no, you're the fortunate one. We had to believe. We were there, we saw him. But you believe without ever having seen him. So that came about because some of that light had been transmitted into the receptacle of the direct disciple and then that in turn was seen by the next generation of disciples that's called guru parampara Parampara, transmission of lineage from teacher to disciple and on and on anyway all this around this subject of mauna so let's take our break here and come back in 10 minutes